All right, so for many of you today, um, some of these things that we're going to be talking about may seem to be rather simple, but I am convinced that it is necessary to talk about them. And I think a lot of us would probably be pretty surprised um, if we really knew what those around us or what some of those around us actually believed. And if we knew, you know, what people in our community believed or in our state or in our country, because um, oftentimes we kind of assume that people know everything that we know and then they do something insane and we're like, what do they think? Well, they may just be ignorant. And uh, an example of this, actually me and my dad were talking the other day and he told me about a Barna poll that he had read that basically said that somewhere I think from 60 to 70% of Americans identify as Christians, but of those Americans that ident identify as Christians, less than 20% believe that the devil is actually real, that he's actually a real person. Now, whether or not that is completely accurate, I don't know. But, you know, most of us here, I would say, probably believe that the devil is real. And we may assume that everyone else who calls himself a Christian would believe the same. And it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. And this is especially true, I think, when it comes to salvation. Because we've been blessed to have a pastor here in this church who preaches the truth, who preaches that we are saved through faith alone and Christ alone. And we have been hearing that for all 34, 35 years that he's been here. So we may assume that everyone else knows that as well when a lot of people are ignorant of the basic truths of the gospel. So we don't need to necessarily assume that everyone knows what we know. That's why it's important to share the gospel with others. And that's why it's important that we ourselves make sure that we know what the word of God says about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and our need for the Lord. Amen. So with that being said, today we are going to be talking about the danger of religious reform without Jesus. And we're going to be starting today in Matthew chapter 12. If you would like to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. It's a pretty familiar uh, story here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus. And kind of in the context of this passage, um, Jesus, he was being opposed by the religious leaders of his day, even though he had been preaching to them, even though he had been teaching them and doing all these signs and wonders. Still, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, they had accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, basically. They were saying that he was driving out demons by the devil's power himself. So, this is kind of how Jesus responds to what they say. Starting in verse 43, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil gener generation. So Jesus is kind of using, he's speaking of demon possession here, but I, I want us to see that this passage has a lot of application, not just for demon possession. This, this, this passage can be used to teach us that when a human being experiences some sort of reform or change in their life, 
they are probably going to end up worse off than they were before if they do not put their faith in Christ. So what was happening was these religious leaders, they had seen what Jesus had done. They, they, they had seen his sinlessness. They had heard his words. They had heard his, his sermons and his teaching. They had seen him open the eyes of the blind. And eventually he would raise people from the dead. So they, rece- they received this incredible revelation from God. Like this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. But instead of falling down at his feet, they rejected him. So beforehand, they obviously weren't good with God. They had heart problems, but even more so afterwards, after they had received revelation of Christ, of who he was and is, they rejected him. And they ended up being worse off after meeting Jesus than they were beforehand. And that's not, that wasn't Christ's fault. That was their fault because they were hardening their hearts. And I think when we read this passage, this has a lot of application just for when a person undergoes some sort of religious reform in their life. For example, a person, maybe they, they stop getting drunk, they stop having sex before marriage, they, they stop watching porn, they stop, they stop uh, taking drugs, whatever it may be. You know, the, the common things that people get caught up in nowadays and people get enslaved by. Maybe they give some of these things up, but they do that without actually surrendering control of their lives to Christ. And the danger here is that I think one of two things are likely to happen in that case. One, they may become a very religious, prideful person who thinks that their religious reform is good enough in order for them to go to heaven. Or they may turn around eventually and go back and live in the same sinful lifestyles and pleasures that they enjoyed before. Because like Jesus says here, A person, they go under some sort of reform, but then when their house is empty, it's swept, it's put in order, then they end up being worse off at the end than they were at the beginning because no one else came in to fill the house. The evil spirit left the person, but then it came back with even more evil spirits because the house was unoccupied. There was no one else there. It was just tidied up. But there was no one actually filling that person's heart that could protect them from the temptations and the trials that would come afterwards. That's why it is so important for us to emphasize that it's not necessarily about being a good person, okay? And I'm convinced that apart from Christ, there are no good people. Because the Bible defines a good person as being someone who is covered by the blood of Jesus and who loves God from the heart. But without the Holy Spirit's conviction and influence, without the Spirit's indwelling in a person, that is simply not possible. That's why the Bible says that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved besides the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we need to remember these things. So turn with me now to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. This goes in line here with what Jesus was saying back in Matthew chapter 12. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The scripture says, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then I'll go ahead and read verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, 
and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. According to my personal opinion, and I think this is, I think this is biblical, I would say that the most dangerous place for a human being in this world isn't with, you know, the drunks and the partiers and the prostitutes and the gangs and criminals and those circles. I honestly think that the most dangerous place for a man or woman's soul to be is in church while they are actively rejecting the gospel that is being preached to them. Now, you may be thinking, why does he say that? Well, look at what happened with the Pharisees. They saw Jesus face to face. He was there. He was doing all these wonderful things. He was fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And they rejected Him. And their hearts became harder and harder and harder. And obviously we want people to come to church, right? Because this is a place where they are going to hear the gospel. This is a place where they can be redeemed and restored, where they can find God's purpose for their lives. But at the same time, there is responsibility. When God shines His light of revelation upon our lives, we are then responsible for responding correctly to that revelation that we have been given. And the Bible teaches again and again, we can see it with the people of Israel and then during Jesus' ministry. When a person or a group of people hear the gospel, hear the good news, when God tells them, repent, believe, repent, believe, and they reject Him, and they reject Him, and then they continue to reject Him, and their heart becomes harder and harder and harder. And eventually, a person may reach a point where they may never come back, where their heart is so hard that they may never believe. And again, that's not on God. God can soften the hardest of hearts. God can save anyone. He can save the vilest of sinners. But the Scripture teaches in Romans chapter 1 that when God is reaching out His hands to a people, and they reject him enough times, eventually he's going to tell them, you don't want me? You're not going to have me. Go do whatever you want. And that is the most dangerous situation a person can be in because if we are turning away from the Holy Spirit's conviction, then how can we be saved? We can't be without the Holy Spirit's conviction, without His working, without His dealing with our hearts. So today, as we go further into the message, for all of you here, I want, I want us all to take this seriously. And listen, I'm not bashing good works today, okay? As Christians, we are to perform as many good works as we possibly can, but only for the right reasons. If we're thinking that being a good person and doing a bunch of good works is enough to earn our salvation or to make it to heaven, then we are wrong. We're doing our good works for the wrong reasons. But if we are performing good works in order to please our God, the God that has saved our souls, then we are on the right track. So I am not bashing good works. We want everyone around us to be productive members of society, to do what's right, to obey the law, all these things. We should uphold the law. We should uphold morality and all of that. But we have to understand that that is not the gospel. Good works are a result of what the gospel has done in us, not the cause of our salvation. We have to be very clear about that. And again, I know that's a really simple, basic stuff for a lot of you, but I promise you that there's people out there who come to church that don't have a clue that that is the case, that that is the truth. So we need to emphasize these things. 
And the Bible also, it says, I'm not going to turn over there. I think it's somewhere in 2 Corinthians, maybe chapter 6. It says that today is the day of salvation. There's a reason the Bible says that, because we're never promised tomorrow, right? Like we hope and pray that we have tomorrow and that we live for a hundred more years if God gives us life that long. But we're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's why it's so important for us to make sure, 100% certain, that we are good with God today, here and now. And I promise you that it doesn't matter what you have done in your life or where you're at right now, if you will repent and believe, Christ will save you. That is the promise of the gospel. All right, turn back with me now to the Gospels. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is probably one of my most favorite stories in all of Scripture. This is a parable from the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I've noticed that whenever we're reading the Gospels, Jesus, he really likes to serve out a big heaping load of humble pie, especially to people who are really, you know, really religious and probably, you know, proud of themselves and what they've got going on in their lives. Jesus, he he wants us to learn how to be humble, and that's kind of an emphasis here in this parable. So you can follow along with me in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his, his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we kind of got a compare and contrast here between two individuals, right? And we can just, just, I mean, he was talking about the Jews here, so they didn't really have a church, they had the temple, but we can kind of put this in Christian terms here. So two men, they, they go to church. They're going to church, and they're going to church for the same reason, to pray. But their hearts, the disposition of their hearts were completely different, and that's why I'm saying it's not enough to simply come to church. It's not simply enough to try and be a good husband or a good dad or a good wife or mother or son, brother, daughter, or whatever. That's not enough. It's about the disposition of the heart. We think that we have to try and clean the outside when God is more concerned with getting on the inside and transforming us from the inside out. He's the great physician. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9 that the heart is desperately sick with sin. Who can know it? So if Jesus is the great physician, he's the great physician physically, and he's also the great physician spiritually as well. And that's more important than anything else, that he gets inside of us and transforms our hearts. And we can just see in this passage just the the pride that was oozing out of this Pharisee. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself. You notice that little phrase there? Standing by himself. Standing away from, from the sinners and the swine that had, that had filled the temple. He was there by himself standing and he was proud. He was focused all on himself. 
He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I, 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 me, 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 me. He was focused upon himself. He was focused upon his own self-righteousness. And he honestly thought that that was pleasing to God. He honestly thought that God was looking down upon him thinking, man, this guy right here, he's really got it going. That was this man's disposition. But then, to contrast that, we see the tax collector. Listen, tax collectors, they were hated by their fellow Jews because they were working for the Romans, which was an empire that was oppressing the people of Israel during that time. And furthermore, the tax collectors would overcharge their fellow Jewish countrymen for their taxes, and then they would skim off the top, and they would make themselves rich through their fellow countrymen's taxes. Sounds kind of familiar nowadays, doesn't it? But yeah, so they were hated by those around them. They were thieves. That's basically what they were. Tax collectors, they were thieves. But this tax collector, he had experienced a change of heart. He was being convicted for his sins, and instead of turning away from God and saying, no, he'll never accept me, what did he do? He went to the temple, he went to church, and he prayed, and this is how he prayed. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't say, well, Lord, I'm at church. I'm doing you just a wild favor by being here. He didn't say, well, well, Lord, I know I've broken the law in all these different ways, but I did all this good stuff too. That wasn't what he said. And notice how simple it was. We oftentimes try to overcomplicate salvation and think, oh, it's this formula. You got to go through this step and this step and that and that and that. This man literally prayed like five or six words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And we're going to be talking about in more detail what that word justified means here in a few moments. But we can just see the contrast here. One man was prideful, the other one was humble. And God, he is the one who humbles the proud, but exalts the humble at heart. And you don't have to turn over there, but I'm going to read this verse real quick. This is when Jesus uh, was pronouncing his seven woes over the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees. He says in verse 25 in Matthew 23, let's see here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So again, they were focused on the outside And listen, these Pharisees, these scribes, like we kind of get a snapshot into what was going on in their hearts because Jesus came along and denounced them. But I almost guarantee you that if we lived back during that time, these guys looked like they had it together. Externally speaking, they knew how to make it look really good, really pretty. They were rich and they gave tons of money. They knew how to pray long, eloquent prayers. These guys, some of these guys probably knew almost the entire Old Testament from memory. Okay, like I can barely quote 10 verses sometimes when I'm really trying to. These guys basically knew the whole Old Testament inside and out. They were very, very religious. And I think kind of a danger that we face in our community, in our area, is that we don't just have just a ton of, you know, crazy, you know, off the cuff, really morally vile, terrible people living in this area. So we may be tempted to think that, 
well, you know, he's sowing his oats right now, but he's fine. He's basically, he's a good person. Or we may think that about ourselves, you know, like, like I'm not like this person. You know, I may, I may do this, but I'm not like all these people. Well, other people aren't supposed to be our standard. The Word of God is supposed to be our standard. So we have, to, we have to realize that that is a real danger when you, when you live like in the Bible Belt in a very religious area. It can be tempting to think that everyone's good because everyone's basically a good person. Well, I guarantee you that people, no one around here looks as good as these guys did, and yet their hearts were full of pride and hypocrisy and lust and greed. And that's why they eventually ended up murdering the Son of God by having Him nailed to a cross. And that's when their full wickedness, the wickedness of their hearts was really put on display. And the problem with these Pharisees, they, they really thought that they could earn righteousness in God's sight by obeying the law. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we can't, we can't look at the Word of God and say, well, I've got to do this, 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 and then the Lord's going to let me into heaven. The purpose of the law, the, all of God's commandments in the Bible, is to show us, hey, you can't do it. You can't meet the standard. God, He is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. We can never reach or attain that standard on our own. And that's the purpose of these commandments, ultimately, is to show us our need for a Savior. And just think about this in terms of a human court of law. If some crazy guy murders five people, is he going to then go to the judge and say, well, I know that I killed these five people, but I think I should go free because then after that I decided not to kill anyone else. So I, did, I broke the law, but now I'm obeying it because I'm not killing anyone else. That wouldn't make any sense. He already broke the law, therefore he's already worthy of condemnation. And there's no way out for him. He has to pay the price. And in God's court of law, it's almost the same for us, but God made provision for us. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then again, Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 11 says basically the same thing. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So they, Paul keeps using this word justified here, and Jesus used it too. We need to understand what the word justified means. Because most of us, I would say, understand that when you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins. And that is true, amen? You are forgiven of your sins when you believe in Christ, and therefore you are saved. But... At the same time that you are forgiven of your sins, you are also declared to be perfect and righteous in God's sight. That's something that a lot of people don't understand. They think that salvation is only about forgiveness of sins, of God cleansing us and seeing us as now being innocent. But God not only sees us as being innocent, He sees us as having the righteousness and perfection of His Son. So the perfect life that Jesus lived has now been credited to our account. If you believe in Christ, your identity is now in Him. And when God looks at you, He sees His Son. He sees the perfection of His Son, and He sees the blood that His Son shed on the cross. So Jesus, He paid the price for our sins, 
Like sin is worthy of condemnation and death. Jesus paid that price on the cross. And at the same time, He gives us His status of holiness and perfection as a free gift, not to be received because we go to church, not to be received because we give money to the poor, to be received by faith. By faith and by trust in Christ and in Him alone. There's also another story in the Gospels. I'm not going to turn over there, but the rich young man. Lots of us are probably familiar with that story where this this rich young man, he comes to Jesus and he asks him, Teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of takes him through the commandments and the guy says, Yeah, okay, I've obeyed that one. I've obeyed that one. I've obeyed that one. But then Jesus says, Still one thing you lack. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. Now, Jesus was not telling him that you're going to save yourself by selling your possessions. What Jesus was telling him was, your possessions have become your God. Your possessions have become your idol, so you need to leave them behind and come and follow me. And listen, at the heart of an action like that is faith. God is calling us to faith in Christ. Jesus isn't simply just a one-way ticket out of hell. He is to be our Lord. He's to be our everything, our all in all. And a lot of people understand that and they want the benefits of salvation. They want the free get out of hell pass, but then they don't want to surrender their lives to Christ. They don't want him to be the king. They don't want to have to say, I'm sorry. They don't want to have to confess and live for someone other than themselves. And they end up in a world of trouble because they may outwardly profess that Jesus is Lord, But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do that? Did I not do this and that and this and that? And he will tell them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. It wasn't that they knew Christ and then all of a sudden lost their salvation. He says, I never knew you. They looked like they were Christians, but they really weren't because they did not surrender to the authority of King Jesus. But the way we have to do that, my friends, is through faith, through complete and total trust and surrender. And when we surrender to Him, when we trust in Him, we can be forgiven. We can be restored. And listen, the gospel, when we preach the gospel, it's not only for unbelievers. It's also for believers, right? I think all of us need to remember each and every day what Christ did on the cross for us. Because the Bible doesn't simply say, Once upon a time, ask Jesus into your heart and depend upon that prayer to save you. It says, keep believing. So each and every day we are to be reminded, hey, I'm still trusting in him. I'm not trusting in a prayer that I prayed once upon a time 50 years ago. I'm trusting in Christ and what he did for me right now. The Bible calls us to believe and then to persevere in that faith to the very end to keep trusting in Christ, to keep confessing Him as our Savior and as our Lord, to trust in Him no matter what, to never trust in ourselves to get to heaven, to never trust in our pastor or in our parents. Because on Judgment Day, I'm going to have to answer for me. And all of you are going to have to answer for yourselves as individuals before God. And I promise you, there's only one that can save you. And His name is Jesus. And you have to continue to trust in Him to the very end, both as your Savior and as your King. And listen, Jesus, He's not, he's not a tyrant. He doesn't come in and destroy our lives whenever he, he comes to live within us. He gives us joy. He gives us peace. He gives us forgiveness. He says in John chapter 6, 
that if anyone comes to me and is hungry, he will hunger no more. If anyone comes to me and is thirsty, he will thirst no more. Because when we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, everything changes in our lives. And we will find a satisfaction and peace that the world cannot give us and that the world could never take away from us. All right, we've just got a, a few more verses to look at here. Please turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Scripture says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Does that mean that God doesn't love righteousness? No, He loves righteousness. It pleases Him when we are trying to do what is right. But at the same time, after we do something good, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do something bad. We're going to sin. We're going to struggle. We're going to fall into temptation. We're going to have to face these battles each and every day. So if a person is thinking to themselves, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not good with God right now, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to go do more good things. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, in my own strength and under my own power, I'm going to please God. But here's the issue. Trying to cleanse yourself spiritually is like trying to take a filthy rag and you're just scrubbing it into your skin as hard as you think because you think, oh, the harder I try, the, the cleaner I'm going to be. But imagine doing that with a filthy rag, right? The harder you scrub, the dirtier you're going to become and the dirtier you're going to feel and the more, more hopeless you're going to become because you're going to realize, I can't do it. I can't clean myself. I can't make myself righteous. And that's the problem with a lot of people is they have the gospel wrong in their minds and they think, oh, I've got to do all of this in order to earn God's favor. And they realize they can't because they really can't do it. And then instead of falling at the feet of Jesus begging for mercy, they turn away. They turn away, they walk away, they don't come back to church, they don't want to read the Word, they don't want to pray, they don't want to do anything because they think that God is completely and totally done with them when that is not the case. God is the one who goes out and seeks the lost sheep. Put yourself in the position maybe of a sheep that's lost out in the woods at 4 a.m. and there's coyotes and wolves and pit bulls and everything running around trying to kill it, okay? Would you think that that sheep in that situation is feeling very hopeful? that it's thinking to itself, you know, I'm probably going to make it out of this. No, it thinks it's going to die because it is about to die. But then the shepherd shows up Amen. and he scares off all the wild animals and he comes in and he takes the sheep up and he takes it home. Even though the sheep may have been hopeless, there was still hope because the shepherd is stronger, because the shepherd is smarter and is wiser. Well, the Bible says, and this is the good news, that Jesus is the good shepherd. And the Bible says, I think in either, I think in Hebrews chapter 13, that Jesus is the great shepherd of his sheep. He's the one that goes out into the darkness, into the woods of this world. And he goes and he saves people who have no hope. So that's my encouragement to you all today. I hope and pray that each and every one of you that is listening to me is already saved, already knows all this stuff, and that this is just a simple reminder to keep persevering and to keep going. 
But if you have not been saved, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, I promise you that His arms are open to you today. But like I said earlier, there's a lot of responsibility. When you receive light, when you receive revelation, you're responsible for what you or for how you respond to it. And this is this is the good news of the gospel that the Lord, He is the one that will cleanse us. I'm going to read a verse real quick here. We got two more verses. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And a lot of people think born of water there means baptism, but it does not because baptism is an action and works don't save us. What Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about the, uh, he's talking figuratively about the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Just as water cleanses our bodies, so the Holy Spirit, when he comes in, when we believe in Christ, when we are born again, he comes in and He cleanses us. So we don't have to try and use the, the filthy rags of our own good works, our own righteousness to try and please God because that's never going to work. He's the only one that can come in and that can cleanse our hearts and cleanse our minds. Amen. And the Holy Spirit will give us new life and new hope. AJ, if you'll come. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the hope of the gospel. And what's so tragic about what happened during Jesus' ministry is that He came to save the Pharisees. He came to save the arrogant, the prideful, those who are lost. That's why sinners gathered around him because they realized, hey, I, I can sit with this guy. I, I can talk to him. He's not judging me. He's not condemning me. And there will be a day when Jesus comes back to judge the world and condemnation will come on that day. But here and now, we're living in a time of grace, a time of mercy and a time of peace where God is holding out his hands to us. So yeah, Jesus, he came to save the Pharisees. He came to save the hypocrites. He came to save those who look like they've got it all together but are dead on the inside in their hearts. He came because He loves us. And He still loves us to this day. And oftentimes as Christians, we may think to ourselves, well, now that I'm saved, I've still got to perform well. And we do, we do need to serve the Lord and honor Him in all of our actions and words and strive for that. But listen, your good works are not keeping you saved. I promise you that. Because like, like I said earlier, even as Christians, we can't obey the law perfectly. Amen. Each and every day, Jesus is to be our all in all. We are to trust in His sacrifice, to trust in His resurrection, to trust in His ascension, and to trust in the sure promise, as Darwin preached a couple of Sundays ago, that He's coming back. Amen. In the same way that the disciples saw Him go into heaven, He's coming back, and He's coming back to get His church. He's coming back to save and fully redeem all those who believe in Him, all those who have called upon His name because of His great love for us. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were still His enemies, even when we maybe tried to clean ourselves up in God's sight, He still loved us. And He came and He made provision for each and every one of us. Jesus did not just die for a certain group of people, as some people say out there. He came and died for everyone. The Bible says in the book of 1 John that He is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world so that all who believe in him may have eternal life and have peace with God. Please stand with me. I'd like for you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if anyone would like to come and pray up front, the altars are open. I just want to emphasize to you all that wherever you're at in life, you can be saved. And if you're a Christian, praise God for that. Praise Him, exalt Him, and don't give up. Keep believing, keep trusting, because Jesus is faithful. His promises are true. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. We can trust in Him. And if you have not been saved and you want to be saved, you can just pray a simple prayer just asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to be the King of your life. Pray that from the heart, in faith, in trust, in surrender, and He will save you. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You and praise You for this wonderful truth that, God, our own religious reforms cannot save us. Our own righteousness, our, our good works cannot save us. But God, You can and You will. You will save all, Lord, who believe in You, who trust in You, who put their faith in You as, as their King. Because You are the King of kings, You are the Lord of lords, You're worthy of all the glory, the honor, and the praise. God, just protect us, Lord. I pray that You will implant this Word in the hearts and minds of everyone who is here. Don't let the devil take this Word out of their hearts and minds, God. Make us strong, Lord. Help us to love you more and help us to share this good news with those around us. This is, this is the gospel. This is the news that can change a person's heart and a person's life. And help us to never assume that those around us know exactly what's going on, God. That's why it's important for us to live out the truth and to speak the truth. Lord, continue to protect us all from physical harm, spiritual harm. Lord, just help us to meditate upon your words and your great love for us. Lord, we love you and praise you. Help us to persevere. Help us to trust in you to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.